You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, the long-delayed for reasons that are not at all our fault, episode 212. Uh, I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and where else but balmy Houston, Texas, though it's slightly a a little bit less balmy today, but I won't talk about weather. We've sworn that off. With me this morning is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you this fair morning, sir? I'm pretty good, David. I I do want to uh, give a uh, caveat mTOR to our listeners. Mm -hmm. If you hear a ghostly moaning coming through your speakers, it is because the wind outside is going at about 50 miles an hour, so... Your 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 i your iPhone is not haunted. It's uh, it's just coming from my end. I don't know that you can hear it, but if you can, that's uh, that's what it is. Yeah. So Michael Farner, Farmer, the the uh, the guy who's advocating for Radcliffe Gothic, says it's just the wind. <laughs> well, when you're out here on the moors, you know. <laughs> um, also with us is associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm actually recording from home today. We're on spring break since spring starts about the second week of February in Georgia. <laughs> Excellent. Well, spring break is next week for us, so I'm I'm counting the days. Week after that for us. This is where we can never go on vacation together, guys. Yeah, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> Excellent. Well, is there any network shop talk that we need to do before we dive into today's uh, topic? Uh, By the time this drops, you should have the last of the Theology Beer Camp episodes. I took a while to get the last one out because it it took some recording. If you listen to it, you'll understand why. We've also got a pretty good discussion on a difficult topic from City of Man. Uh, They did an episode on the politics and the philosophical ethics of abortion which is uh of course you know one that's highly contested but uh i think that their conversation you know kept things at, at the very least you know fair and you know open to question so uh what that a, was a really good episode what other stuff is going on on the network the christian feminist podcast had a really good episode on divorce that that's probably a couple weeks ago by the time this mm-hmm. airs mm-hmm. but if you haven't heard that i thought it was really good yeah, Katie did so, an so, awful lot of prep for that one, and I'm, 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 I'm kind of stoked that they even took it on. You know. Yeah, I was going to say this is the season for one-word episodes that no one wants to touch, <laughs> like the Didache. Yo, there you go. <laughs> Sectarian Review has also had a couple good ones lately. The uh, I I enjoyed the transhumanism episode much more than I expected to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, as did I. It actually made me feel kind of better about transhumanism. 
<laughs> they actually wow that's i mean for someone who who to the core of his being loathes technology as much as you do that's well that's not that's not <laughs> true i just don't trust it <laughs> i mean i do i don't know if you know this david i do do a weekly podcast really huh got to get into that it sounds cool i would i quite enjoyed the uh Todd Pedler, Dan Dan Dawson episode on private space ventures. I'd like to I'd like to hear some more of them, some more space colonization talk from them, especially after we did the Martian, uh, the Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. So, you want to go to Mars and pick up a hot Martian babe? They'll already be extinct by the time I get there. From <laughs> I don't know, like the common cold or bird flu or something uh, you know you you would kind of be spender in that situation don't you think like I would totally be spender <laughs> like like you'd be very quiet and uh and sensitive and then you would you would just like start shooting i would immediately be besmit by the romance of dead mars and and change my colors immediately that that would happen so fast your head Nobody go to Mars with David Grubbs. Yeah, Grubbs. seriously, no, I would not be safe. I would not be safe on Mars. If you have no idea what we're talking about, go review the uh, the Martian Chronicles <laughs> episode. The Ray Bradbury episode. Well, right, episode 211. Excellent. Well, today we are talking about the... Uh, what did you... How did you pronounce it, Michael? I said Didache. Is it... How is it pronounced? Oh, uh, no, I was I was talking about the, the way you were... Oh, the fake pronunciation? The Didache? Yes, the Didache, yes. <laughs> we're going to talk about the Didache. Uh, I say... I say... I say Didache, but I don't know where to put accents in Greek. Can yeah, you... yeah, in the Greek word, the accent's on the ultimate syllable, so it would be Didache, but I think Didache is close enough. So not the di- Didache, then? Okay. No, no. <laughs> Tomato, tomato. All right. Well, Nathan, what is this didache, 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 this thing? What is this thing? What sort of Christians produced this writing, and what things that we know about is it most like? This is a document that more than likely comes from early 2nd century AD. It's from the generation of Christian writings that church historians call the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, So these would have been folks who presumably could have been uh, in contact with the apostles directly. Uh, Now, there's there's relatively little, um, how to say this... relatively little to go on either direction so i mean you know you could make the case that it's an early document you could make a case that it's a later document there's not a whole lot to go here uh it is written in greek uh the dialect is koine Mm -hmm. uh and as far as what writings is it most like i mean i see some definite uh family resemblances to the gospel of thomas is the gospel of thomas yeah the gospel of thomas uh you know the sort of sayings gospel uh, that doesn't mm-hmm. have a whole lot of plot line to it. Certainly doesn't follow the uh, lives of the apostles the way that the canonical gospels follow the life of Jesus or the canonical book of Acts follows the acts of the apostles. It's also not necessarily an epistolary form like the letters of St. Paul or St. Peter. Uh, so it really is kind of a, a collection of sayings. Um, you know, some people have noted that the actual content of what's going on there uh, bears some family resemblance to 
the Gospel of Matthew more than it, you know, resembles the other three. Uh, although, frankly, I mean, most of the material you could find kind of scattered throughout the New Testament. So um, beyond that, I mean, David, is there anything else you would add just kind of as an introduction to this document? Some of it reminds me a little bit of, of wisdom literature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, especially Proverbs, uh, but also some of the, some of the apocryphal wisdom lit, mm-hmm. uh, the wisdom of Solomon, things like that remind me a bit of it a little bit, but I'm, I'm no expert. Um, and there's, there's also sometimes a tone in here that, that makes me think a little bit of James, um, that the, the turn towards aphorism and things like that mm-hmm. remind me a bit of James. But, right. I, I suppose the other literary echo that I did pick up on is, uh, you know, this is a text that addresses the reader as my child, which is reminiscent of the first epistle of John and also of wisdom literature more generally. Hmm. I, I would say in terms of genre, I, I would I would class it with non-Christian texts from that same era like um, Epictetus's Enchiridion. Ah, OK. It's, this is a this is a handbook. Uh, of sorts, you imagine it being passed around among the churches. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. it's worth pointing out this wasn't discovered till 1873. So, like, we knew that the the did existed. We we knew that it existed before then, but like, we didn't have a copy of it till 1873. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's one of the earliest Christian documents, I believe, and yet in terms of our access to it, it's been relatively mm-hmm. late. It's composite, right, Nathan? Uh, honestly, I don't know enough about it to say. I mean, I, David, I mean, do you know anything about this? From what I read, there's basically one manuscript of it that's like 11th century, 12th century, something like that. I don't remember the details. Um, some monk found it, you know, as, is, as, as will happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what uh, what we're dealing with, as far as I understand it, is is a, a late copy of a text that seems to have the hallmarks of early authorship, with all of the with all of the complexities and hedging <laughs> that necessarily goes along with it. Right, but there's a there's a good chance that some of this book was written before some of the canonical New Testament. I mean, you can't you can't know that. You certainly couldn't mm-hmm. know which parts of it. I've heard that argument. But this is a this is a very very early document. From oh yeah, I've yeah, ever read. yeah. That much we can say with some confidence. Right. What I read is it's probably from Egypt or Syria. Hmm. hmm. All right. And and probably from Syria because they talk about mountains and there are, I guess there aren't any mountains in Egypt. I don't really know Middle Eastern <laughs> geography. Nor do I. Apparently, <laughs> North African geography. Well, n- not in the Nile Delta, so to speak, but maybe, maybe towards the, towards the mount, towards the uh, source of the Nile, upriver, hmm. as you get up into, towards Ethiopia. I don't know. Cool. Well, there are two ways, Michael, one of life and one of death. That's how it begins. So, what in this ethical teaching? That the didache, that the didache, <laughs> what in this eti- ethical teaching will be familiar to Christians today, and what things actually might confront us? 
Well, quite a bit will be familiar, um, because quite a bit of this comes straight from the New Testament, or perhaps from a source that parts of the New Testament also come from. Uh, he he gives they give three main commandments, which are the two great commandments: love your God uh, with all your heart, soul, strength. I can't remember the order, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then also the golden rule, although the golden rule is phrased in negative form rather than positive right, form. Right. So don't do to other people what you wouldn't want done to yourself, which is the more familiar historical form of the golden rule. By the way, Confucius gives it, and when Confucius gives it, it's the negative mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. It, uh, Christ is one of the earliest ones to put it in positive form, from my understanding. Right. I believe they're also extant rabbinic golden rules in the negative uh, there are a number other uh, a number of other sayings from the sermon on the mount uh, love those who hate you turn the other cheek etc there are commandments against double mindedness against bodily cravings and then there are rules that come from the hebrew bible there's the uh, forbidding of murder adultery theft covetousness magic and sorcery false testimony uh tells you to keep your word and i, I believe it does so in the hebrew terms um keep your word rather than don't make oaths at all mm-hmm. which is what christ says mm-hmm. uh and then there's rules familiar to american uh, christianity uh verse 2 2 says, uh, you shall not corrupt boys, which could either refer to homosexuality or to pederasty in particular. Um, There are rules against promiscuity. Maybe most interesting to me, there's a rule against abortion and infanticide. Mm -hmm. You shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. And I don't know if that suggests they're two separate things or if they're basically two sides of the same coin, but both of them them are forbidden. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, abortion is never directly forbidden in the Bible, so I think it's it's significant that this very early text does forbid it. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2.7... Let's see, I I have it open in front of me. It says, you shall not hate anyone. Instead, you shall reprove some and pray for some, and some you shall love more than your own life, which seems like a very different sort of attitude from that you find in in the Gospels. Uh, And it reminded me a bit of like Augustine's properly ordered love, Mm -hmm. so you should be loving some things more than others, and the the essence of ethics is to put those in the correct order. Mm -hmm. There is at least one contradiction with the New Testament, which is that the the Didache <laughs> says, keep strictly away from meat sacrificed to idols, for it involves the worship of dead gods. Mm-hmm. Of course, Paul, uh, in, in response to what was apparently a raging controversy in the early church, mm-hmm. says, go ahead and do it if you want, as long as you're doing it in the name of God. Right. But then the Apocalypse, uh, one of the letters to the seven churches, I mean, condemns them precisely for eating food sacrificed to idols so i mean right. it's it's definitely one that was not settled by the you know the composition of the didache hmm. there are quite a few things here that will be foreign to american christians um it's not just that there's an equality of, of the rich and the poor it's actually an inverted hierarchy the poor are better than the mm-hmm. rich in the in the didache um there's a voluntary socialism in the early church just like there is in the book of acts um, like the book of Philemon, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm, I'm not sure anymore about my Greek pronunciation. <laughs> the structure, the structure of slavery is kept in place, but there's a democratic tendency within that structure. Mm-hmm. So let me show you what I mean. This is um, this is chapter four, verse ten and eleven. 
You shall not give orders to your slave or servant girl who hope in the same God as you when you are angry, lest they cease to fear the God who is over you both. For he comes to call not with regard to reputation, but upon those uh, whom the Spirit has prepared. And you slaves shall be submissive to your masters in respect and fear as as to a symbol of God. So it, it disturbs people, I think, the book of Philemon, when Paul doesn't say, hey, maybe you should set your slaves free. Um, and, and you get the same thing here. You're supposed to treat your slaves well, understand that you're the same in Christ, uh, but the institution is not actually condemned. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's foreign to certain types of American Christians is that it says that prayer has to begin with confession. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think a lot of low church churches don't begin their services with confession, and I suspect a lot of Christians don't begin their private prayers with confession. But the Didache says that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Am I leaving anything interesting out? I feel like I was pretty pretty thorough. Oh, there's so much of it. Is it, uh, any 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 choice bits you want to toss toss in the hopper, Nathan? Well, the choice bits I'm going to talk about in later questions, so I'm <laughs> going to hold off for now. Sure. Well, then I'll do the same. A while back, we posted a Profiles interview with a British theologian named Chris Tilling, who was discussing what he calls the Christ relation in Paul's writings. Basically, the Christ relation, as he defines it, is how a given text presents or explains the relationship between Jesus Christ and the Christian believer. And he sees this as an important thing to focus on in in determining a lot of what a text teaches about the person of Christ. So, Mm -hmm. Nathan, what is the Christ relation of the Didache? What here is familiar and what might be surprising for us to find left out? Well, one thing about this text is, I mean, as I read it, uh, and it's been, uh, Michael and I were talking about, about this before we started recording, it's, it's probably been 20 years since I've read this text, <laughs> uh, but it is a text that, you know, has an attitude towards Jesus that resembles the synoptics to a great deal. Um, if you want to find, you know, direct assertions of Jesus's divinity, they are going to be hard to find in here. If you want to find Jesus called Lord, it's going to be all over the place. Um, so, I mean, it, it's one of those texts where the, I don't, I don't want to say the line between low and high Christology, uh, but the vocabulary of Christology is of the Messiah, of the Lord, uh, of these sort of royal titles, you know, drawn from uh, Roman and Greek sides, of, or Roman and Hebrew sides of things, pardon me. Um, and to... Because of that, I'll put it that way, uh, what you get in this text is, you know, Jesus really as the sort of teacher to be sure, but even more than that, Jesus as the king. Uh, So, you know, this is the way to live because this person whom God has raised is in fact the king of all kings, uh, will in fact rule in fullness at some point, uh, and therefore, you know, to walk the path of life that we talked about earlier uh, is to live in loyalty to this King Jesus. Um, Hmm. You know, as far as, uh, again, the relationship of, you know, the implied reader to Jesus, once again, I mean, it it seems to be of a disciple of Jesus, to be sure, uh, a worshiper of Jesus indirectly. uh, But unless I have, you know, missed passages, and I'll go ahead and confess, uh, listeners, 
Uh, I didn't review this as closely as I should have before we started recording because we had those gremlins. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I missed the... Uh, oh, how to say it. I mean, the, the Gospel of John flavored in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, yeah. and the Logos was God. Yeah. I I don't see any of that here. Also, did maybe maybe I was just skimming, but... Did either of you notice the crucifixion? No. Now that you mention it, I can't think of a place where the crucifixion does show up. Mm-mm. Yeah, that was extraordinarily odd to me. I mean, but let, let's let's say this: this is not a book about doctrine as such. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a practical handbook, the church order, so to speak. Right. Right. So so I mean, not not that. Not that the the crucifixion and the divinity of Christ would have no place in an Enchiridion, but it is at least understandable they wouldn't be here as much as they would be in a in a in a text that was much more about orthodoxy than about orthopraxis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the baptism section, and yeah, I mean even the the burial language that you get sometimes in Saint Paul doesn't really appear here. So mm-hmm. I mean even the death of Christ, more generally, much less the crucifixion of Christ, doesn't really figure prominently mm-hmm. though it is it is the baptismal formula from the end of matthew mm-hmm. yes indeed which is which is su- it's, it's super interesting to me to see w- which thing which new testament things i'm familiar with are here and which ones aren't and to try to come up with some kind of <laughs> reason uh, how do your translations render things like Nine three, when uh, praying over the over the Eucharist, you say, "We thank um, you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which we have, which you have revealed through Jesus, your child servant." What did you say, Michael? Servant. What did you say Nathan? Child. And I'm I'm looking in the Greek right now. <laughs> What does yours say? Mine says child. Okay. But the My, I'm using um, the Lightfoot translation. But the one that I listen the the audio version. Uh, Paidos is the Greek, so it is definitely child. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. This is a bad translation. Well, <laughs> can can it also mean something like youthful manservant? Like, like like boy, like pool boy. I don't know. Oh, I, I I don't know. Jesus, I, you're a pool boy. <laughs> and I and, nice. and my uh, my Greek lexica are in my office, and I am not. Mm-hmm. So so Pido, you said, is it Pidos? Pidos. Yeah. Pidos. Okay. Which is super interesting because isn't that the generic word for child? When in in the New Testament, you just ex- you expect huios. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Oh, instead you mean it's son. child instead it's of child, son. not son. Yeah. Right. And I'm just looking here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's parallel with David, your child, in 9-2. Mm-hmm. So that uh, David, as son of God language, picked up from the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And that says servant in my translation as well. Ah, fascinating. Well, it may be that they translated it servant because they were uncomfortable making David God's child and then wanted to keep the parallel. Mm-hmm. Oh, that could be. That could be. How about um, I wondered if it was in ten? How about ten three? The last the last line of ten three. Eternal life through your. Does it say child there mm-hmm. too? 
because it says uh, servant. And the mine. Greek is Pidos once again. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Each of those, it's Jesus, your Pidos, Jesus, your Pidos, Jesus, your child. Um, I I wondered if the Lightfoot translation, if Lightfoot was maybe, I don't know, if he w- if he was coming from the from the perspective that this was that this was at a time where the assumption was that it was a low Christology, and so they wouldn't have developed the Jesus as Son of God language. Oh, to okay, degree. that's possible. If m- maybe Light- Lightfoot was kind of a, making those sorts of assumptions, and then sort of s- stretching Pytos to its <laughs> to its denotative de- limits or something. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I'm interested. It doesn't. It doesn't. The footnotes don't say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't give any kind of justification. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, I'm also interested in the in the degree to which, especially in the two ways section, there's all of these quotations, all of these references to things that I would identify as uh, as parts of, you know, Matthew five, six, and seven, Sermon on the Mount. Sure. Or their, sure. Or their parallels in Luke. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to me, I identify as Jesus teachings that these are these are Christ's sayings, which are not necessarily identified as such in the Didache, but they're tossed out there with the same kind of axiomatic authority as "Thou shalt not murder." Mm-hmm. Right, which could mean that the people who had the Didache, I'm never going to be able to say that word easily because I've been saying Didache for. 15 years but um what was i saying that the people who were reading this would have already had the gospels or again it could mean that this is based on some sort of earlier source mm-hmm. that the gospels the the synoptics are all the q or whatever uh, right right i, I kind of read it the same way i read patristic authors mm-hmm. i mean who usually don't stop to say this is in isaiah this is in luke they just kind of yeah. drop the phrase in there and assume you're going to catch it yeah. I mean, at the which very is what least, I imagine makes editing an edition of Augustine such a booger. Yeah. At the, at the very least, they <laughs> wait. Have so some you mean that the the in the, are you saying that in 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 Augustine's originals the the verse references don't appear? <laughs> as, no, as no I, I'm asking. Yes. <laughs> I'm asking a serious question. I I did not realize that reading reading my edition of the Confessions is like listening to a guy with a bad stutter. There there's so many parenthetical verse references. Oh, but that, that's okay. added by the. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Added yeah. by the I translator. Mean, yeah, Bible verses hadn't been invented yet, or Bible chapters. Right. I couldn't remember when the chapter and verses mm-hmm. came from, but I thought I thought maybe maybe at least he'd had the the book yeah. there. Oh, he he he, very possibly did. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as he rolls along, he just assumes that you and the, you the reader will pick up on the phrases. Well, but even those phrases gotcha. are themselves citations in that era. Right, you you can you can drop the phrase at the beginning of a passage, and that is a citation of the passage. Uh, oh, okay, 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 okay. I, I get what you're saying. So, in yeah. other words, like like we would say, the Magnificat. Yes. Yeah. It, it's not a. It's, ah. it's It's not as if you know the top of the sheet music says the Magnificat. It's. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. It's a reference to okay this this particular chunk or or the Beatitudes would be another one another kind of classic right 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 gotcha or, or so it's 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 more like the uh the the little headings at the beginning of the sections in my mm. bible yeah more like that mm-hmm. okay cool i'm sorry to ask such a stupid question about augustine <laughs> no that's all right that's all right that's uh no that's that's something that uh 
you know, I, I always drop on my students that, you know, 600 years ago, there was no such thing as John 316. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously I knew, I knew that the, the chapter and verse mm. were not original to the text, but I didn't know when they were, right. when they were introduced. Yeah. Yeah. A good millennium after Augustine. Yeah. It's always Bible helpful verses were to invented. know the difference between your text and its apparatus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just to, just to distinguish, but you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't write the footnotes in your study Bible. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but Schofield did, and Schofield is the next best thing, right? <laughs> that might be another episode. To be f- to be fair, David, d- Jesus didn't write the Bible. Well, yeah, it never actually says that he read it, wrote anything, except for that one time he was writing in the dirt, and even that's questionable. Right. Which is going to be the subject matter for Dan Brown's next novel. <laughs> but we do know he was literate, because one of the first things he did in his ministry was read from a Torah scroll in synagogue. Right. And he skips all over the place in it, too. Well, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's his prerogative. <laughs> yeah, I, I always wonder about that, because I, you know, the, the sort of... And I know we're completely off on a rabbit trail here, <laughs> but that that's one of those things that the sort of biblical studies people... Uh, that are not evangelical just like to drop as if it were just you know indisputable fact that Jesus was an illiterate Jewish peasant mm-hmm. and I'm thinking okay I mean if that were the case and you know you got your you know criterion of embarrassment then why would they invent Jesus reading in the synagogue mm-hmm. right and reading in a complex way mm-hmm. yeah yeah Skip, skipping around in Isaiah to say the things he wants to say mm-hmm. right that's some sophisticated negotiation of a text that, frankly, is difficult to negotiate at the time. Yes, indeed. And you, and you could say that in a pre in a pre literate culture, they're going to be better at memorizing things mm-hmm. such that they can skip around like that. I mean, we've all read the Phaedrus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you read you read some of the early fathers, and they start going off on all the verses they can think of that have the same image in it. And they're pulling stuff out of minor prophets and the back end of, <laughs> of Deuteronomy and second Chronicles. And, and they've just got it at the tips of their tongues. And so mm. they're able to, they're able to kind of make patterns of images that we today kind of need concordances and full text searchable documents with computers to do. <laughs> oh well. So the Didache. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious about this, Michael. Is there are references in it, but is there a gospel in the Didache? Is there is it a problem that I can't find anything like the Romans Road or John three sixteen in this writing? Even though Nathan has already convinced us that there is no John three sixteen at this point. <laughs> well, I, I think I think again keeping in mind the genre of the of the text is going to be important. So the editor of my my edition, this is Michael Holmes, and the edition is the Apostolic Fathers. It's a lovely green hardback. It's a, it's one of the most attractive books in my library. <laughs> anyway, he says, The two ways material appears to have been intended as a summary of basic instruction about the Christian life to be taught to those who were preparing for baptism and church membership. In its present form, it represents the Christianization of a common Jewish form of moral instruction. So with that in mind, it, it maybe makes sense that there wouldn't be gospel as such, because... 
because this is taking a Jewish form and adapting it for the church. Here are the things I found. Um, it emphasizes the importance of generosity, and, and in being generous, the Christian becomes the agent of God's blessing. Mm. But, and, and this is maybe the strangest part of the whole text to me, it's a one five. Blessed is the one who gives according to the command, for such a person is innocent. Woe to the one who receives it. If on the one hand someone who is in need receives, this person is innocent, but the one who does not have need will have to explain why and for what purpose he received, and upon being imprisoned will be interrogated about what he has done and will not be released from there until he has repaid every last cent. That is not talking directly about divine grace, but it certainly sets up a vision of grace that is transactional. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what he's talking about in terms of going to prison, and the footnotes don't tell me. It sounds like he's starting to riff off, riff off of that bit that we know from, uh, is it is it Matthew 5 uh, about... Yeah, it's definitely Sermon on the Mount. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's Sermon on the Mount about lending and borrowing and... You know, if you know, you'll you'll if if you're found guilty, you'll end up in prison, and you won't come out until you pay the uttermost farthing, something like that. Right, I don't right. The exact passage, but it's not this. <laughs> yeah, right, right. This that that to me is the most disturbing thing in the book because it 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 seems so counter to the to the view of grace. Mm-hmm that we talk about now is this yeah. like overspilling abundance um, coming from God. Um, there, there is also maybe something Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. This is four six. If you earn something by working with your hands, you shall give a ransom for your sins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like your 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 tithe brings your forgiveness. And then finally, to join the church, you have to be holy. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is in the, the prayer after the Eucharist. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him repent. So, I, I mean, that that too I think you could kind of square with what we think of as gospel teaching, that, that joining the church requires repentance. But it, it also sounds like if you're already holy, <laughs> welcome aboard. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. It may It may be that it, it may be that I'm too I'm too Protestant to appreciate this. Mm-hmm. That 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 sola gratia thing might be overplayed a little bit. But uh, right. the, those those parts of the the Didache really uh, really made me uneasy. Mm-hmm. Right. It's certainly not a a revivalistic version of sola gratia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something where you know you can still have the you know the smell of the brothel on you and, you know, come to the altar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's something where, I mean, I, I think you could still make the argument that it's a divine gift, but that, you know, part of the gift is the discipline of, uh, you know, receiving holiness as an act, mm-hmm. uh, which I, right. which I realize, I mean, you know, I, I've got, you know, Martin Luther on the bondage of the will yelling in my ear. If, if we contribute even one jot to the salvation of our souls, then we have taken away all of the power from God. But, he wasn't writing the Didache, so what you know? In the, <laughs> well, in the, yeah, I mean, he was writing in a specific cultural yeah. scenario in response to particular theology. Right, right. I mean, the the sort of as is the Didache. Well, yeah, the picture this one paints is that the gift is itself the 
struggle for holiness that, you know, um, if you are struggling for holiness, then you've already received part of the gift and you are, you know, working so that you might inherit the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, I mean, from a, from a reformed or Lutheran perspective, that is semi-Pelagian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we also need to invoke what you said earlier, Michael, and say that this is also a, a, a semi-complete teaching. <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, uh, and it's about praxis more right, than doctrine, and, and I think it's very, very important to remember. I, still, you, you, you kind of have to ask about what are the things that they're hinting at? What would be the realities that they hint at that are kind of filling in the corners on this? And and mm-hmm. even then, it's very difficult for me to imagine something that's that would sound, um, that would sound at home in the mouths of basically any preacher I like today of, of any stripe it sound it, it start a lot of it sounds a lot more like Tertullian at his grumpiest <laughs> right which we're all in trouble if that's the true voice of the gospel <laughs> if surly Tertullian is 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 the gold standard of gospel preaching where um we are mm. of all men most to be pitied Poor Tertullian. <laughs> I really, really want to like him, mostly because he, mostly because he's surly. I, I, I like that about. I think, him. I think people say that about me he's too, David. Feisty, <laughs> that that they wish they could like you. Uh-huh. <laughs> His wife is so nice. Nice. Well, okay, let's fight about the ordinances. That that'll be fun, right? Sure. Um, Nathan, what does the Didache have to say about baptism and the Eucharist? Well, this is actually the context, uh, and and I'll say believe it or not, but if you've known any Stone Campbell people, you'll believe it easily enough, <laughs> uh, where I was introduced to the Didache because uh, we just have an obsession with uh, the antiquity of baptism by immersion. Yep. So, oh dear heavens, is this our favorite <laughs> apostolic father text? Uh, because this is a text that assumes that if there is enough water in a place to immerse somebody, that's how you best baptize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if in, you know, the, the dire circumstances that you are in, you know, the, the deserts of Arabia or the Sahara, and there is only enough water to pour, then you may pour, but you know, uh, that's only for a, a dire, dire emergency. Um, man, did you read that differently than I did? <laughs> no, I'm giving you the reading that I got when I was a 19 year old. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is a text, you know, once again, that, you know, assumes uh, baptism by immersion. It assumes that, um, you know, pouring is something that, that is a possible provisional approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as far as the Eucharist goes, I'll kind of sum this up, and then I want to hear Michael's alternative reading, because like I said, the uh, the Stone Campbell education that I got is coming out here to be sure. Um, when it comes to the Eucharist, uh, what's interesting is that you say grace, you give thanks after the meal, uh, which is something that, you know, I, I had beaten into my head again, uh, at that, you know, Stone Campbell Christian college that we do things as Jesus did them. And of course he broke bread and then he gave thanks and then he passed it to them. So you say grace before you take the meal, uh, not after, uh, so that was definitely a, a curious little bit for me. Um, 
let's see here. I mean, other nuggets about this. Um, it seems to assume that, you know, uh, and again, I, I didn't study the Greek on this, so I apologize for it. Uh, but it seems to assume a common loaf here mm-hmm. uh, because it refers to the piece, uh, which, you know, I assume means something that's that's taken off of a loaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also refers to a single cup. So, I mean, you could imagine something like intinction as the model that it assumes here. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at, at this point, I'm, I'm just incoherent. So, Michael, what is this alternate reading? I read it as saying the specifics of the ritual aren't all that important. Hmm. Okay, go ahead. Uh, after you have reviewed these things, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that must be one of the very first... Uh, one of the very first uses of that phrase, by the way. Mm-hmm. In, ru- in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do it in warm. But if you have neither, and then pour water on the head three times. Now, you're right, it seems to privilege uh, immersion baptism. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. what I walk away from that with is that the, the mode is not as important as that invocation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Which uh, which which they say twice there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I you know the way it was taught to me again is that you know this is the way to do it. Only go to this one if the first one won't work. And I I, I see how the text could support that reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting. I, and again, you know, this is my Stone Campbell background coming out. So I mean, I see why David pitched this one to me. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, it, it says that before you are baptized, you should fast, which means that probably we're not baptizing infants here. Um, yep. Just knowing what I know of infants. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to make an infant fast, though. They can't. It's not like they can do anything about <laughs> For it. For one or two days. <laughs> yeah. Look. Hey, there wasn't a there wasn't defects <laughs> back then. <laughs> I, I'm saying is you're going to be baptizing dead babies if you starve them for two days. And these are the baptizer also fast. Did you yep. notice that the 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 person who does and it as many mm-hmm. of, as many of of the rest of you as can. So that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. The Eucharist has no mention of the Eucharist representing or being the body and blood yes. of Christ. Right, right. The the w- and in fact, the bread, the bread, what if it symbolizes anything in the Didache? It symbolizes the broken church. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. let's read that for the pe- yeah. Uh, I'll do that. This people, is uh, nine, three, and four. <laughs> We give, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and then was gathered together and became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, in the cup is we thank you our father for the holy vine of David your child which you have revealed through Jesus your child. To you be glory forever. Mm-hmm. As uh, as Nathan says, the prayer of thanksgiving and prayer is a uh, prayer for the church are said after the mm-hmm. Eucharist. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, those are scripted, so you're supposed to say this particular prayer, unless you're a prophet, in which case you're allowed to say whatever prayer you want. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there's there's also a description of a love feast in chapter fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's not clear to me, and this this is I know a debate about early uh, early versions of the Eucharist. It's not clear to me whether the love feast is different than the Eucharist or whether it's the same thing. And love feast right, is like a right. potluck dinner, right, with the Eucharist at the center of it, or perhaps that's the only thing the Eucharist ever was. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the 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 phrase there is, you know, break bread together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that that seems to be the same phrase that's up in the Eucharistic session. Mm-hmm. So you could either make the case that you know the love feast is the Eucharist, or you could say that the Eucharist has completely supplanted the common meal. Mm-hmm. The Southern Baptists, you know, did this right. <laughs> oh, it doesn't say anything about fried chicken. So I, I think it's extraordinarily in- interesting that uh, the what are called what are often called the words of institution are are not in mm-hmm. here in in the Eucharist. The um, on the night that w- that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, "This is my body." It, it, like like that right, that right. bit of First Corinthians that. Every church tradition that I know of includes those, mm-hmm. uh, and and the Didache doesn't, which means that if there's no there's no Luther in this church pounding on a table going hopest cor- hawkest corpus meum right he's nobody he he can't because <laughs> it's not part of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um. I really don't know what to do about that. Yeah, I, I <laughs> well, I mean, one one thing that we can do <laughs> is say that, you know, the sort of Augustinian orthodoxy that we kind of take for granted is one variety of Christianity that exists mm-hmm. in that ancient world. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, it, it does mean, let me go ahead and say this before I, I get accused of saying stuff that I ain't saying. <laughs> Uh, it does mean that you probably better have a good reason to go Didache rather than right. to go Augustine, because Augustine is the tradition that has been handed down to us. Uh, but historically speaking, I mean, we can say that this is one variety of things that's going mm-hmm. on. And we can say it, it's it's a variety that, and we might have mentioned this earlier, I can't remember, uh, that was not included in the canon of Scripture. Right. You know, the the there were church fathers aware of this document, and they said, you know, we acknowledge that it's there. It's not part of the canon. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them refer to it as a book that has some some good some good teaching in it, a, a wise book, even an authentically Christian book, but not mm-hmm. canon. Um, right. Which makes me, which is kind of comforting to me, because none of the none of the symbols, none of the modes, none of the concepts that make the Eucharist or baptism but especially the Eucharist, intelligible to me, are here. Right, right. None of the ways Which, that once I know again, the I mean, could be about this is here. <laughs> right. It could be just an assumption that they already have the text of mm-hmm. Matthew, and so you know, there's no need to right. repeat it. Uh, Except they but, do repeat I mean, it. They repeat parts of it, yeah. yeah. But they don't repeat the narrative framework in which it occurs. Right, right. I just, I just think you have to keep in mind that this is a, this is an Enchiridion. This is about, this is about rights and behavior, mm-hmm. and not about, not about doctrine. Right. Now, and you, mm-hmm. you could say, well, maybe that distinction isn't as clear as the book wants to make it, and and I, I don't know that I would disagree with that, but because the because the primary function of this is to is to train Christians and prepare them for baptism, I don't have as big a problem with mm-hmm. it. Well, let's move on to another big concern of the of the Didache, which is how one treats itinerant Christian ministers. There's a lot of that in here, 
which I, I, I guess I didn't realize the degree to which I, I, I don't know what, what, what you would even call these folks, Michael. Who, who are these people and what does this show us about the context of the Didache? The New Testament talks about both apostles mm-hmm. who appear to be itinerant and elders or deacons who seem to be attached to a given church. Right. Mm-hmm. The apostle doesn't provide long-term pastoral support for a given congregation. Instead, he works as a kind of overseer, maybe like a uh, maybe like a traveling bishop, if you want to think of it mm-hmm. that way. But that's where the New Testament epistles come from. These are apostles who are writing to various churches, for the most part. I, I know that some of them are not. Um, the clergy in the in the in the Didache is quite elevated. Uh, they they essentially stand in for Christ. Mm-hmm. And because of that, perhaps, false teachers are everywhere. And, and you get that sense from the New Testament epistles, too. This is a perennial mm-hmm. concern of Paul's. Um, so, so there's false teachers everywhere, and so you have to reward the true teachers. Hmm. What makes a false teacher is clearer in the epistles, I think, than it is here. <laughs> <laughs> and which, again, may just mean that they, they have access to the epistles. So we, we right, know what a false right. teacher mm-hmm. is. We don't have to tell you. Um, but ultimately, the rule seems to be kind of pragmatic. Um, but if the teacher himself goes astray and teaches a different teaching that undermines all this, do not listen to him. However, if his teaching contributes to righteousness and knowledge of the Lord, welcome him as you would the uh, as you would the Lord. So, hey, if mm-hmm. it works, he must not be a false teacher. Um. Some of the specific rules are kind of strange. Uh, a minister is only allowed to stay for one day unless he needs two days. But if he stays for three days, he's a false apostle. <laughs> the minister can take food, but he can't ask yeah. for money, which would seem to contradict 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 12, where, where Paul argues that ministers have a right to be paid. And yet, Paul waves that right in his own case. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know what you make of that. This rule would seem to prevent abuses by traveling prophets. They can only ask for money to give to people in need, not for themselves. And, and maybe that would even cut down on the number of false prophets who would presumably be in it for, for the money. Right. You're not allowed to test a prophet who speaks in the spirit, whatever that means. But not everyone who speaks in the spirit is a prophet. <laughs> huh. You're supposed to recognize a true prophet by his conduct, and presumably that means how he ma- his life matches up with the Didache. <laughs> right. But but how the convenient. the rules there are the, the well you know the the rules there are uh, hazy at best. Uh, a prophet and and my footnote in my edition says nobody knows what to make of this. Maybe you guys can help <laughs> me. A prophet who quote orders a meal in the spirit shall not partake of it. That's eleven mm-hmm. nine. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Nobody apparently nobody does. Lightfoot doesn't know. Holmes I mean, doesn't know. We're all the prophets just kind of like rolling in there and like ordering dinner, and then they like kind of snap out of it, and they're like, "Oh, what? You brought me lobster? <laughs> I, never, I didn't ask for lobster. That must have been the Holy Spirit." Maybe the prophets like, "Well, if somebody else orders pizza, I'll have some, <laughs> but I don't need any." <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> maybe they're tired of the prophets doing that. Fast I mean, aggressive. if everybody else is going to eat, the, uh, it, yeah, I guess it will too. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, CCEL has a an interesting suggestion here that you know the traveling prophet might have presided over the love feast that we mentioned mm. earlier, 
and that you know that person if if the prophet were to preside over it then that person shouldn't basically call the love feast so that he can chow down well that makes sense but does that mean he just can't eat at the love feast he can eat at the uh, love that's... feast as long as he doesn't direct it yeah yeah so i mean you can imagine him getting together okay you know I didn't have breakfast. Could one of you guys, you know, call the lefties this time? <laughs> right, right. But it says he's allowed to take food. Well, I, or maybe, maybe that's a minister, not I, a prophet. We may be talking about two different. Well, roles. I think they're they're maybe maybe what they're dealing with is the idea that these prophets kind of roll in there with a whole lot of potential tacit authority. Yeah. Except that food is supposed to be something that comes out of hospitality and grace, not out of the the command of the prophet. All I can oh, okay. think of is all those unmarried preachers who spend their Sundays flitting from church to, from uh, house to house, being <laughs> being fed. Well, if <laughs> if you get invited, I think you could probably eat as much as you wanted, but you can't, you know, just kind of sort of go into some kind of glossolalia Holy Spirit trance and with a really really specific KFC order. <laughs> So the most confusing rule here, uh, and I, I'm just going to have to quote it. This is 11:11. A genuine prophet who quote does not does something with a view to portraying in a worldly manner the symbolic meaning of the church is not to be judged by you. Huh. <laughs> Here's what Holmes says, and I'm not sure this. This is what he says. The phrase has never been explained satisfactorily. It may refer to the acting out of some symbolic action intended to convey spiritual truth, analogous to those performed by some of the Old Testament prophets, for example, Hosea's marriage to Gomer, which may have seemed to some members of the community to be be of doubtful propriety. So maybe it's just saying that the, the, the real judge of the prophet is God and not the church. So if the prophet's doing some weird, like, existential allegory stuff... Maybe, maybe let him make that decision. Yeah, if he's lying around naked in the street, and, and, building... and the dividing line here is, and and he doesn't <laughs> mandate it for other people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, hospitality is limited. Those who come in the name of the Lord, and apparently those people aren't prophets or apostles, although it doesn't say what they are, they get two or three days for free, and if they want to stay, they have to contribute to the community and not freeload. Which seems like a good rule. Like you think of a you think of a place like Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's um, commune. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're welcome to stay as long as you want, but you do some chores in response in in uh, mm-hmm. in, in repayment for your food. That, that seems like a perfectly reasonable, sen- sensible. Well, it sounds rule. like stuff Paul says. Right. Mm-hmm. Prophets who stay get the first fruits of the community. If you don't have a prophet, you give those first fruits to the poor, and and presumably that would keep the community from fighting over who gets the best. Well, none of them are going to get the best. The best goes either to the traveling prophet or to the poor in the, uh, to, to the poor outside the community, I would suspect, since everybody in the community, it's a commune. So, <laughs> you know, everybody has the same amount. So that, 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 that is another, like, sensible, practical rule, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Have I left any weirdo rules out? No, I think you pretty much hit them, as far as I can tell. Does the light foot... One is the Lightfoot translation the one that uh, talks of has the, the this itinerant minister comes and he says something or he he does something in the spirit and says uh, and and do not obey him for he is a Christmonger. What what verse is that? David? Oh, 
the translation that I'm looking at doesn't have it, but the the translation of the Didache that's on LibriVox has it, and I just love I just love that that rendering Christ monger. Um, I think they have it as Christ seller or something like that. Uh, twelve, twelve, twelve five. five. Yeah, he is trading on yeah, Christ. Trading on Christ. Christ monger is like way Christ. better. I like it really is because I I really want to like just sort of wander through evangelicalism more broadly construed and just sort of fling that. Well, I mean, it's (laughs) a a good, it's a good phrase for what's going on in some corners. (laughs) Robert Tilton is definitely was definitely, I don't think he really has a show anymore, but Robert Tilton, definitely a Christ monger. Yeah. Yeah. Though that farting video, that was awesome. Wait, there's a, there's a video of Robert Tilton farting. But you never saw that. No, I got. No, they find edited that. it in, but it's really, really funny. In, in, yeah, in, yeah. In Every ca- time he makes the pained spirit face, they edit in a fart <laughs> noise. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it, it was it really, really funny like, when uh, I was fifteen. I, I don't know how. I the mileage might vary now. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's, a, it's kind of a golden moment in my memory. As I told, as I told my literary theory class a few weeks ago. Uh a fart reminds you of your body, which reminds you of your mortality, which means laughing at a fart joke is laughing at death. <laughs> it's very noble. Huh. That, that sounds like the kind of reasoning that makes Ray Charles God. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think it's about time that we round out this uh, this edifying and not at all fart-based discussion of the Didache. Um, Are we going to talk about farts next week? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> should be episode two. Yeah, I'm almost certain that we would have gotten oh, thrown shoot. out of you know Mr. Didache's church. <laughs> anyway, we've talked about the basics, and we've talked about the stuff that interests me because you know that's that's frankly what guides it when one of us is at the helm. So, what have I left out that's worth a mention, Nathan? One of the things about this text that I really enjoy, uh, you know, like I said, revisiting it 20 years later, uh, is just some of the very particularity and materiality uh, of some of the community rules, Uh, especially, I mean, you know, your fasts must not be identical with those of the hypocrites. Okay, so far so good. We're in Matthew 6, right? Uh, But then the next line is, uh, this is 8-1, by the way. Uh, they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Oh. Uh, so I <laughs> Those are still the traditional fast so days. So different. Like... <laughs> Who were the hypocrites? Do we have any idea? I like to think it was well, a the... school of itinerant <laughs> philosophers called the hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the people who fasted on Mondays, clearly. I just told you that. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I'm um, no, it's all right. And and then, you know, I mean, like Michael pointed out before, you know, a, a traveling prophet can stay for two days, but on the third day, you got a false one. Yeah. Uh, what if so, I, I, mean, I found ri- myself like, what if he broke his foot or something? <laughs> or it sounds like it sounds like a Benjamin Franklin saying like the like the fish and guests stink after three days or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this must just be us being so far from the context of the yeah. DK, right? I mean, it just it must just be we oh, don't I'm understand sure. what this is about, so it's funny to us, right? Right, and I mean, I you know, I, I imagine it would be something like, uh, and I'm not pro- pro- uh, I'm not proposing an identity here, but at, at least an analogy uh, between the 
rancor that sometimes characterizes uh, exchanges between uh, you know, sort of traditional Protestants and Catholics on one hand, and then Seventh Day Adventists on the other, on which day to worship, right? Uh, you know, I mean, there have been, I mean, some genuinely fierce disputes over that, uh, which, of course, I mean, I, I think of those disputes every time I hear of, you know, a a church that, you know, has gotten so big that they start offering Saturday night services. Uh, and I think you, you realize how much people fight over that. You know, you ought to, you ought to take that maybe a little bit more yeah. seriously. Um, but, you know, as you said, I mean, you know, this is something where I think some more knowledge of the context, some more proximity to the context might make it a little bit less alien to us. But at the very least, uh, you know, this is some serious ethical reflection, some of which can remain sort of, uh, enthymemic, you know. Uh, of course, you don't fast on Mondays. Don't you know that? <laughs> Michael, I mean, what did you pick out here? I'm very interested in a, in a passage from chapter 3 where small sins of desire lead to large sins of mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. So anger, jealousy, quarrels, and temper lead to murder. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Lust, vulgarity, and roaming eyes lead to adultery. Again, fair enough. Fortune-telling, enchantment, astrology, and magic lead to idolatry. You can see that. Lying, greed, and conceit lead to theft. And grumbling and arrogance lead to blasphemy. Hmm. So the the solution here is humility, patience, mercy, innocence, quietness, and goodness. These are the... uh, you, You have to inculcate these virtues to avoid these small sins leading to larger mm-hmm. sins. Mm-hmm. Most of that it's, seems like pretty good advice mm-hmm. to me. Right. It's apostolic Yoda. <laughs> yes. I, I, when I get to that passage, Michael, I keep wanting to do Thomistic capital sins things with it. And I, I'm not sure if that's the mode they're operating in, but maybe that's an accident of the fact that I'm lying downstream of so much of what happens in Christendom that they are upstream from. Mm-hmm. Right. I I like that stuff too. I like the the emphasis on humility, especially the emphasis on turning the other cheek, not retaliating when persecuted, not talking back when reviled. All of that hardest stuff <laughs> that's in the Sermon on the Mount is just core to the the ethics of the Didache. As is generosity to a point that um, I think would make lots of people in the American kind of American church uncomfortable. We're super, we're super comfy with the notion of actually having possessions that are ours. The Didache doesn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Nor does the Book of Acts. Well, okay, for like a chapter. <laughs> I mean, you right. know, they're they're not in there the whole time. There's some swashbuckling and acts that we can uh, focus on that. Um, (laughs) But the the ways in which these, the heart, I guess what what would sometimes be the 21st or 20th century and 21st century hard texts are the core texts. And that that I think is one of the most interesting things, is which things did they find... Uh, I, I would be interested to see which of the things in 
the kind of growing New Testament relation uh, revelations would stick in the craw of the Didache people. Because <laughs> the things that stick in our craw, they are super fans of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I got. Well, dear listeners, that is our conversation about the Didache, such as it is. If you want to pipe in and correct us, uh, our pronunciation, our background material, if you have um, interesting observations on Didache-related matters, or uh, if you know other things about early patristics that would really give us some light on who who's fasting on Mondays, we'd love to know. You can send them to our email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post them on our Facebook page. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can post them in the comments to our blog at christianhumanist.org. Uh, we also crave good ratings on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are rated, I guess. What are we doing next week, y'all? Next week, we're going to have a conversation about Dungeons & Dragons, a game that I spent a lot of my teenage years playing and encountered no small controversy. So we're going to talk about the game, the controversy, all that groovy stuff. And for our Minnesota listeners, he's talking about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> well, I look forward to that, dear listeners, and I hope you will as well. In the meanwhile, I wish you all grand weeks. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast. It's a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, and leaving you with the words of Martin Luther, let your sin be strong, and let your faith be strong. <laughs>